0: A title isn't leadership. Leadership is an attitude. And I've tried to always have that leadership attitude to try and help the people that I was supporting do a better job. And that's one of the things that I'm probably most proud of in my career is the fact that I think I've done a pretty good job of that.
1: Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it's all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. I'm your host, Peter Margaritas, the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of my business, The Accidental Accountant. My goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 54, and today's guest is Alan Lloyd, who is the new CEO of the Montana Society of CPAs and the former senior manager of the board and executive operations at the Ohio Society of CPAs. As Alan writes on his LinkedIn profile, at the intersection of trust and getting things done is a group of people. I am one of them and have evolved from an administrative assistant to a senior manager working on projects critical to the organization's success. In this interview, you'll hear about the critical role Alan played at the Ohio Society CPAs as a transition from the longtime CEO, Clark Price, to the new CEO, Scott Wiley, which was a very interesting experience. Alan's ability to help in a smooth transition, both for the new CEO and the organization as a whole, catapulted him into a management role and now to the CEO of the Montana Society CPAs. This is a great opportunity for the members of the Montana Society of CPAs to learn more about Allen's leadership style, as well as the accolades he gives to the leadership at the Ohio Society of CPAs. Listen, learn, and earn. I have partnered with the Maryland Association of CPAs and the Business Learning Institute to bring an exciting new learning opportunity for accounting professionals to earn CPE credits. You can earn up to one CPE credit for each completed podcast episode purchased for only $29 through the Maryland Association of CPAs and the Business Learning Institute self-study website. The podcast episodes are mobile-friendly. Open your browser on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Go to the MACPA BLI self-study account and listen to an episode. Take the review and final exam while you're working out or after listening to an episode on your commute to and from work. It's that easy. While all selected Improv No Joke podcasts are available on my website, only those purchased through the MACPA BLI self-study website are eligible for CPE credit. You can get detailed instructions by visiting my website at petermargaritas.com, and clicking on the graphic Improv is No Joke for CPE on my homepage. I hope you enjoy this exciting and flexible new way of earning CPE credit. Remember, you can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you'd like to purchase a personalized signed copy of my book, Improv is No Joke, Use the improvisation to create positive results and leadership in life for $14.99 and the shipping's free. Please go to my website and you'll see the available now on my homepage. Just click and go to the shopping cart. In addition, you can now download Improvise No Joke audiobook for $10. You can follow me on social media. You can find me on Facebook by searching The Accidental Accountant. On Twitter, my Twitter handle is at PMargaritas. Connect with me on LinkedIn by searching my name and on Instagram by searching P. Margaritas. With that said, let's get to the interview with Alan Lloyd. Alan, welcome to my podcast. It's great to have you a guest today. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Well, thanks for
0: having me, Pete. I am uh, excited to be a guest today.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation because I know you've got a lot of interesting uh, information to share with us, as well as some exciting news. But, you know, first and foremost, why don't we start by you telling the audience who Alan Lloyd is?
0: So uh, Alan Lloyd is a uh, guy who grew up in a small town on the Ohio River, uh, moved out to Columbus to go to Otterbein College, which is now uh, Otterbein University. I've always wondered when your your higher education name changes, do you change or do you stay with uh, whatever it was when you were there?
1: That's a good question. Good question.
0: Yeah, uh, when I graduated from college, one of my uh, friends from college, her mom hired me uh, to work at the Huntington Bank, where for three years I processed car loans and leases. So you'd go, to the, you'd go to the dealership, you'd buy a car, you'd fill out the paperwork, the dealer would get most of the numbers correct. Uh, We would then scan it in and I would type the numbers. I think uh, looking back, that's led me to a lot of my ideas because the first meeting I had with our our director level person, I asked her why I had a job. It didn't seem to make sense because all we were doing was type in numbers from a scanned image into a piece of software. It seemed like the the recognition should be able to recognize those numbers and do our job for us. Um, I don't know that she appreciated the fact that uh, I questioned whether whether my job was uh, should have an existence, <laughs> um, but you know, as you look at automation going forward, it's something that you know has taken hold, and so I was thinking about that long, long ago. Um, after that, I spent a couple of years working at a place called Sky Financial Solutions, uh, doing compliance work there as well. We did loans for dental practices, which. Interesting fact, their dentists are second behind uh, funeral homes and the least likely businesses to go under. Uh, so it's very safe to lend to people who are opening a dental practice. After a while, I got tired of working uh, compliance and started looking for other opportunities. And that is when I stumbled upon the accounting profession. Um, I started working at a regional accounting firm called Norman Jones Lowe. Um, I started there as the executive assistant to the partners. We had, I believe, six partners at that point. Um, One of the interesting things about that time was of the six partners, I think half of them had been managing partners of their own firms, and then over time, they came together to be uh, this firm. So where we had one managing partner, we had three people who had at some point been a managing partner. So those uh, personalities and and ideas were always fun to balance. After uh, six years there, I spent two years in the government, working at the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission. That is where I got my first taste of association and membership types of organizations. Uh, Morpsey is an organization where your local municipalities are members. They come together to talk about how they can make the the region collectively better. And then after a couple of years there, um, I saw an opening at the Ohio Society to be um, the executive assistant to the, the CEO who at that point was uh, Clark Price. And I remembered from my time working at the accounting firm that I just had spectacular service from the Ohio Society CPAs. And the idea of being able to work in a place where I knew You know, there was a very high level of work being done. It was very appealing to me. At that time, I, you know, when I interviewed, one of the things Clark told me was, we're going to take this job, but I'm retiring in X number of days. And that was around two years before he retired. But even at that point, he knew the exact number of days he had left. And one of the things that that drew me to this opportunity was also the fact that I would be able to uh, manage that transition and, you know, as an executive assistant, you look for uh, diverse experience so that you're more marketable moving forward. And I thought, wow, managing a transition from one CEO to the next is going to look great on a resume. So then we hired uh, Scott Wiley, and I was his assistant for almost a year. And he and I sat down uh, to have lunch one day, and he looked across the, the table and he said, Alan, I, I think you can do more. And my initial thought was, man, I've, I've, been, I've been busting my hump here for this guy. I can't believe he's asking me to do more work. And when I said that, he, he, he laughed for a moment, and then he said, no, 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 no. Um, I think you've got potential to do more than just be my assistant. And at that point, I took over uh, managing our member uh, retention and our membership drive, uh, learned a great deal doing that for a couple of years. And then the Ohio Society had, a, had an opening where our, our managed, the software we used to manage the organization was going through a re-implementation and our uh, CIO had just left to become the CEO down at the South Carolina Society of CPAs. And so I spent a couple of years uh, working on that project, which got me into the weeds across the organization um, and really help prepare me for uh, the next chapter, which um, on June 12th, I will uh, start work at the Montana Society of CPAs as their executive director. And so it's been a long, strange road uh, to get to this point. But I think, uh, you know, as we talk, I think a lot of it came from, you know, being willing to improvise and, uh, you know, go into situations where I might not have known the answer beforehand, but I was willing to try things and figure it out and make sure that I learned as I was doing it.
1: That's a great history that you have. Uh, you've got a lot of different variety in your background. And and you and I met when you came to work at the Iowa Society. Uh, I think that was the year that I was... Um, I was chair of a uh, board of directors that year. Uh, and, and we've known each other ever since. And when I heard the news that you were leaving for Montana, I was really excited for you, but also went, it's Montana. It's, it's way, way West and it's beautiful country, but it's, you know, I, I mean, you've, you've grown up in, in the central Ohio area. Oh, well, uh, I grew up
0: down on the Ohio river in a, a speck on the map called Clarendon, Ohio. Uh, when I grew up there, I think the population was 350 people. Uh, and if you went there today, I think they're struggling to have 200 people. So, you know, uh, rural areas are no, uh, no new territory to me. And I think another exciting thing about Montana is, you know, just the, the beauty out there. Uh, yeah. Helena, where the, the Society for CPAs is located, is, is right up next to the Rocky Mountains. Uh, Mount Helena is there. It's not Mount St. Helens. That's the one that you don't <laughs> want with. But...
1: Yeah, that's an Oregon, Washington State, I mean.
0: Yep. Um, but Mount Helena is just there. And, I mean, the recreation opportunities there are amazing. And, you know, that, drew, that was one of the things that drew me to this opportunity. The other is the fact that Jane and the staff out there have built a great organization. Uh, the volunteers out there are top-notch. And I look forward to, you know, there are some places where you would go and you would be instantly into a rebuilding phase. That is not the case here. You know, what I'm looking forward to most is is getting out there and meeting the members and, you know, learning the, the two most important things, you know, what, uh, what keeps you up at night and what gets you out of bed in the morning, you know, yeah. what are the things you're worried about and how can the, how can the society help you overcome those? But also, you know, what excites you about the profession? I mean, Everybody should have something uh, about their career and their job that gets them out of the bed in the morning. You know, what are those things? How can we help you do more of that type of thing?
1: Well, you, you mentioned one of my favorite staff uh, CPE directors in in uh, the CPA profession, Gene Reardon. I, I've known Gene for a, a long time. Absolutely love her. You've got a great uh, a person out there to, to help you. Uh, I think the world of her, and the two of you guys are just going to have so much fun together. Uh, she's a great lady. And, Gene, I know you're going to listen to this, and I am not just sucking up. I mean it wholeheartedly. Uh, and please take care of Alan for us. Uh, he's a good guy. He's, he's a really good guy, and, and you're getting a good steal out of the Ohio Society. So let us I want to back up a bit. When you took the role at the Ohio Society, so you, well, you came from, uh, you were six years at a, at a firm so the thing that you you had mentioned about being at the firm so it's it's like through acquisition uh it, it went from Norman Jones to Norman Jones inlow and Company through acquisition and you've got all these people who were managing partners of their own firm coming together to run one firm together, uh, between the egos and the personalities and stuff, that had to be an interesting period of time. And I think you used the word balance.
0: So one of the interesting things there was, you know, with the the different partners, they had been acquired before I arrived. And so they had some history of working together. But the really interesting times came when, when we'd have a board meeting. And the board meeting would be, you know, the six partners and myself in the room. And in the beginning... Um, my role was just to take minutes and capture what was said and what was decided um, so that we then, you know, later as you're trying to implement things, you could go back and say, well, no, 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 we all, you guys voted. This is what you said. Over time, as I learned the business, I got to have more participation in those meetings. And oftentimes it would come down to them having some ideas about what we what we wanted to do Um, But knowing that in the end, a lot of that administrative work was going to fall on my shoulders, and I had more of the um, the practical knowledge and the ability to think about how we would actually implement these things. The one that sticks out to me is we had a mentoring program that we put in place while I was there. And, you know, the partners had this great idea of, you know, we had some staff that we saw potential – to be the next generation of you know partners and, and managing partner for the firm, but we re- we realized that we didn't have a good way to, to groom them for what it was really like to be a partner, and so in those conversations I got to you know do some research and find out what others were doing and then bring forward a plan that we were able to implement, um, and then looking back it was Andy Cohen was our managing partner at that time when he retired. Nancy Watts became a a managing partner for a while, and now uh, Michelle Roseberry is the managing partner for the office. Uh, Hillbarth and King bought Norman Jones, uh, I think, about two years ago. But it's interesting to look back and say, you know, both Nancy and Michelle were in that group and went through the mentoring program. And so that was something that, that we devised, and looking back, it had a real big impact. I'm sure that the work they did with their mentor help them be successful in that role. So things like that were very, you know, it wasn't something that I had any training on, but it was something that I, I learned about and was able to implement through, you know, their trust and knowing that I understood the business and what the business needed at that time.
1: That's a, a, a great comment about you. You understood the business because at, at that point in time, you were really a trusted business advisor for the firm. Correct.
0: Correct. Throughout my career, one of my strengths has been the fact that no matter where I am, I, I like to learn, you know, how the organization really works. You know, there there are a lot of things that are theoretical and you can say, well, you know, this person manages this and that. But I like to get to know how things actually work and the nuts and bolts of things. Um, because I think that's how you learn, you know, to be a leader. And, and one of the things that I learned very early in my career is that you know a title isn't leadership leadership is an attitude and i've tried to always have that leadership attitude to try and help the people that i was supporting do a better job and that's one of the things that i'm probably most proud of in my career is the fact that i, I think i've done a pretty good job of that
1: that's that's really cool that you've looked at it as a, as an attitude versus I'm in this authority type of position because I I just finished um, watching this video, uh, an interview with Simon Sinek, be a great leader, how to inspire others to do remarkable things. And he gave his definition of leadership, which I absolutely loved. And And it's kind of encapsulated. in what you just said, he said, leadership is the practice of putting the lives of others ahead of our own interests. That, that's perfect. I love that. Yeah, I, I thought it was. I thought it was great. And, and that's, you know, that's true leadership. I mean, just because you're in a in a position of of authority, you might lead by authority, but that does not make a leader. And I, I love the, that that's that story. And it's weird that I, I just watched this video uh, uh, today because he go, he goes on to talk about, you know, a, a leader doesn't have to be the person, you know, who's running an organization. Being a leader is whether you're a, a worker bee or at what level. It's it's helping the person next to you. That's leadership. Yeah, it's the whole the whole concept of the servant leader. Bingo. You know, you can
0: you can get you can do more things by empowering others and giving them the tools they need than you're ever going to be able to do by yourself.
1: Bingo. That's right. It's it's and, and that's what leadership. And my definition is, and I haven't I haven't seen it quite uh, phrased that way, but I absolutely love it. And the other thing he was talking about that leader is is get the culture, get the culture right, because he he states when we get the environment right, humans will do remarkable things. And he talks about you can take a a good person and put them in a bad environment, and and it'll ultimately maybe become bad. Uh, but you can take a bad person and put them in a good environment, and you know what. They'll end up doing, for the most part, the right thing. And and, and it's really the culture that you build. And I think that would be one of the most exciting things in going into this role that you are. There's a culture there, but it doesn't have the Alan Lloyd spin on it.
0: Yep. And, And, you know, that's one of the exciting things, you know, knowing that you have a good team in place. And that, you know, a group of people interviewed you and have trusted you now to lead that group. You know, that's a huge responsibility. And I, I look forward to you know, both finding how I fit in with them and how they can grow with me. Uh, one of the big things in the, in the interview process was I'm a firm believer that when you interview for a job, you, the number one goal should be to be yourself. Um, if you're yourself in an interview, then if you get the job, you can continue to be yourself. If you put on some facade... In order to answer the questions the way you think that people want want to hear answers, you're setting yourself up to to need to be something else that you are you're not. And during the interview process, I was you know I tried to be crystal clear that you know I don't have all the answers, but I know how to ask the right questions, and I trust that the folks around me are going to help me grow into this. And so this is something where as a team, we're all going to have to learn to trust each other and grow. And that is just unbelievably exciting to me.
1: And you've had the opportunity to work under one of my favorite leaders. um, And I call him a friend and and a mentor is your time that you were spent with Clark. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Clark was, was, is, and will forever be in my book, and one of those people that exemplifies leadership. And, and what I loved about working with Clark is you got to watch how he adapted his leadership style to his audience. And it was amazing to watch him work with different people that needed to be motivated in different ways. And it was very interesting then, you know, over time to look back and think, oh, man, he was doing that to all those other people. How was he doing that to me? <laughs> And, you know, you start thinking about yourself and you're like, wow, he, he recognized something and developed it in me without me even knowing it was happening. That's cool. And I think that's remarkable. And, and, you know, it's, it's also been interesting, you know, the transition between Clark and Scott was, uh, from an organization standpoint, very, very interesting. You, You got to see Scott and Clark are very different people. But when you get down to the core, they're both uh, very similar in in what they're trying to do. Um, so it's been interesting to see how people adapt to the different styles of the two of them.
1: And how's that? How's that? Because that, that was one of my questions is during this transition, you've got Clark, who'd been at the society for, what was it, 25, 30 years as the CEO, plus his time before he's like there for 40 years. Uh, I mean, th- th- that's, those are some big shoes to fill. I mean, that's like, you know, I got to follow Bear Bryant? Are you kidding me? I got to follow Adolf Rupp? Are, are, I got to follow Nick Saban? Uh, using bad sports analogies. And their leadership styles, I, 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 as you said, they were very different. How was that transition going from Clark to Scott?
0: So, you know, I think uh, two things really helped in that process. The first was Clark stepped down in a very deliberate way. And he wanted to set Scott up for as much success as possible. And so we didn't have a long time where the two of them were both in the office and we didn't know you know, who was running the show. Clark had been out for, I think, two months. Uh, Laura and I actually had one uh, board meeting in that interim period, which was, I, I believe, I think Laura would agree with me, you know, it was very interesting for us to to hold a board meeting without a CEO. And then when Scott came on, Scott was very deliberate. He was deliberate in what he did and stayed true to who he is. And it took us a while to, to come to terms with who Scott was and what that meant for each of us. And, and looking back, you know, we had some people that left. We have some new people that came on. Um, and the culture has has changed, even though, you know, we still have some of the same people around. It's been a very you know, interesting trip to go on.
1: I, I can imagine. But in, in the, also, the piece about the Ohio Society over the years, it's been a—, a um an incubator for future CEOs as Boyd search left and he's in Georgia. Uh, Chris Jenkins is in South Carolina. You're now in Montana. So whether it was Clark and Scott, they have really cultivated that next generation of state CPA society leaders.
0: Yeah. And it's one of those things where, uh, you know, listening to you, uh, rattle off all of our names. It's, it's impressive but also, as I think about the the process that we all went through, one of the things that that Clark and Scott share is that they really want to grow the talent that they have. I think both of them have invested in us to get us to the point where we had the potential to do this. And I, the other person, I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, I'm going to say her name again, Laura, um, our executive vice president, Laura Hay. Uh, she's done an excellent job of coaching us as well. Because I believe that, you know, if you talk to all three of us, you know, we all work directly with Laura. And she's another one that when you look back at your time with Laura, you realize that she may have directed you to do something, you know, and taught you some things that you didn't realize you were learning at the time. But when you look back on it, in hindsight, sometimes you look back and you go, holy cow, you know, we had this conversation that I kind of wrote off, but it's stuck in the back of my head and it changed how, how I act on a day-to-day basis. And, and it's things like that, that, you know, as I go to this next chapter in my career, that's something that I hope I can develop as a person and, and use those same tactics and ways to grow grow my staff. And hopefully they'll help grow me in the same way cuz i think that's important and i think the other thing that that uh, that i'd like to touch on about this is our volunteer leaders have been great too when when i started at the ohio society you were our chair and you know just thinking back to all the all the great people that have been chairs since i've been here it, it's very interesting to see the different personalities come and be able to hold that room and run the meetings and get get all the board members involved in the decision-making process, that's been very interesting. I look forward to, you know, continuing that out in Montana and, and seeing how, you know, we can take different people with different leadership styles and, and leverage them to, to grow the organization.
1: Yeah. The chair now is Bill Chorba and Chorba was on my board and I immediately recognized this guy was going to be the chair someday. I actually told him, took him aside and said, Bill, you know, you're going to be chair someday. He's a great guy. That's the only one that outside of after I, after I left that I knew directly, but you know, and, and, and Bill's got some great leadership skills. He's the guy that I, I, I would love to watch him in action. Uh, because I, w- I, I know I could learn some stuff f- from Bill. I mean, he, I, he, I believe he's that good.
0: Bill is, uh, if I had to sum Bill up in one word, I'd say passion. It is amazing. The passion that he brings to the profession and to his life and to everything he's involved with. Um, when you have conversations with Bill, he just, he beams about things. And I think there is, you know, there's an energy that you get from that, that, energizes the whole room I can't say enough about Bill Bills Bill's fantastic
1: yeah he's he's a really good guy and I think at one point some years ago he was named the greater Cleveland area CFO of the year mm-hmm. and they just don't hand those out at the street corner No. so you've gone through this transition you've had you've had some great mentors you've had some great leaders to not so much be like, but take some of their tips and talents and stuff to build it into yours. And now you're off to Montana. What's what's going to be like for your? Since we're in the political season, and, and what's your first 100 days going to look like, Alan?
0: You know, it's funny. It's funny you ask that because one of the the last questions they asked me in the interview was, I can't remember if they said 100 or 60 days in. What what should we expect? My answer to them was don't expect, you know, any huge change in, in the first 100 days. But what I hope um, I will bring to the table is, you know, some questions so that we collectively learn some new things. We might not be taking action on those things, but I at the very least hope that together through our discussions and from going out and meeting the members, that we'll learn some things that we didn't know before. And then we can take those back and think, you know, how can we use what we have learned together to grow this organization to
1: make it more successful? That's great. And, and what was their response to that comment? Uh,
0: you know, the, the room
1: erupted in applause.
0: I got a standing ovation, and, and I just, you know, I dropped the mic and I left the room.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it, mic drop. The, the, group that,
0: uh, the group that interviewed me appreciated that answer. and I think going back to you know, interviewing and being yourself, that, that's who I am as a person. I don't like to you know, make grand promises of things that I can't deliver, but I like to set the table of, I'm going to try and get you to think about things a little bit differently. and I think that's something that I've historically done very well, and I look forward to doing that in the future. I'm never the smartest guy in the room, although right now I'm by myself, so I guess by the <laughs> um, But I, I, I always like to ask questions because I, a lot of times, you know, the other people in the room might have the same question, and, and they're for some reason not going to ask it. I've never been timid about asking questions because I think that that drives conversations. As, as you learn about things, you you grow. And sometimes by answering a simple question that somebody has, your answering it will ha- will cause you to think about it differently.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people are afraid to ask questions because they think they're going to ask a stupid question. But as I always say, what's a stupid question? The one that's never asked. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that's, I mean, that, that's a great leadership skill, right? The ability to ask questions. And then listen to everybody's input or comments or ideas, and then formulate some type of plan from that.
0: Yep, that's the key. I mean, you just broke it down in a nutshell. And It's a very simple concept, but in practice, it's very difficult to do. One of the hardest things for us to do today is to listen. I'm sitting here, and I'm, I'm looking at a phone, and I see my cell phone over there, and I see my email in front of me as well. And it's very difficult not to let these things distract you. Um, And so it's important, you know, to be an active listener and to try and not think about what you're going to say next, but really absorb what you're hearing. Um, And I I think as a society, we've made it really difficult to do that with the the technology and the two-second news cycle that we're we're living in today. Uh, It makes some of those things more difficult than it has been in the past.
1: Well, as you, as I I think you remember, I don't know if we did this or not at at the time, but when I did that workshop for the um, CPA FMA uh, uh, group, uh, the improv thing, I spent a lot of time teaching about listening and and the value of truly, you know, parking your agenda, uh, listening to understand that, that act of listening. And and then after the person is done, then, then having that response. I was in uh, uh, Nebraska. Uh, last year speaking at the fall conference and I had 400 CPAs in the room and I was doing uh, my, uh, that similar type of presentation about improv is no joke, about leadership. And I had them, uh, this group play this game called Last Word Spoken. And what it is, is the one person, they, they paired up in twos and one person would start a conversation. I said, whatever it is, just start a conversation. When you end, that last word that you say is the first word the next person uses in their next sentence. And then when they're done, that last word comes back to you. And I do that exercise just for the fact of teaching. A lot of times when we interrupt or a lot of times when we get distracted in our head, some of those last words that are spoken are some of the most important parts of that conversation. And we miss out on them. Because uh, in improv, you know, if, if I'm not totally listening to my, my, my ensemble that I have with me, I, I'm, I'm going to miss it. So I've got to listen to those very last words. And this uh, gentleman who was in the audience, he was a CEO of a a manufacturing plant in Endicott, Nebraska. He contacted me a few days later and said he absolutely loved it. He took it home. He was playing with his kids and invited me to come out to work with their sales team at the national sales conference last October. And you might want to try this with your team. You, you want to give it a, a real quick shot on, on, on this uh, uh, episode? Play this game? Definitely. Do I, I, you want to start with me? You,
0: you start, and then I will
1: follow. Follow it. Follow is something that leaders are good at getting people to do, is to follow them. Them, uh, them trees are growing outside. Outside is where I'd rather be right now because the sun is shining. Shining praise on your people is a
0: very important thing to do as a leader.
1: Leader, if you dissect it, it's is it lead or is it lead? Uh, lead paint is a terrible problem in older homes. Homes, isn't that a, a Mexican word? <laughs> so you see, you've got to take that last word and, and play with it, and it can be a lot of fun. But it also helps teach that piece of active listening because you can't get ahead of yourself. And a lot of times we do. And as we were playing that game, you know, the other thing that struck me
0: is there was a clear pause there every time. And I think in in today's society, a lot of times there is a lack of silence And, and just being willing to let the room be silent for a second so that people can think and not worry about just filling the air with words just so that there's something making noise. You know, I think that's a, that's a big thing that's that happens today is we, we hear an empty room. We start, just start talking,
1: but we don't really have anything to say. That is a very interesting observation because you've made me think about something differently. Usually in that game, I tell people not to think and just react. <laughs> um, and, and just hear the last word, take it and run with it. But, You've just added another dimension to it because I thoroughly agree 110% that that pause for a moment in a conversation with somebody, that pause, actually, the other person is realizing that you've actually listened to them and you're thinking about it. And the respect level for you has now increased versus just immediately coming back with something, like you said, just filling the room with, with words.
0: Yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll tell another short story here that uh, I often tell when I'm on the phone and somebody can't see me. I'm <laughs> sitting here, nodding my, I'm nodding my head up and down. And that's something that I do unconsciously. It's, sub, it's subconscious, it's in my head. I didn't realize that I did it until my grandfather passed away. And I'm sitting there and the, you know the, the preacher is talking about my grandfather and all these things that he did. And one of the things that he mentioned was when he was giving a sermon, he always knew if the sermon was a good sermon, he could look out and my grandfather's head would slowly be going up and down. But if my grandfather didn't necessarily agree with what the the preacher was saying, his head would shake side to side. And as the preacher was (laughs) saying this, I noticed my head was going up and down And I started thinking about it and realizing that just in life in general, that's something that I now look back and I remember my grandfather doing, and it's something that I do constantly. And as I catch myself, it's one of those things that it's a pleasant reminder of my grandfather, for one, Um, but it's another one of those ways that I've, I've come accustomed to realizing that You know, if my head is shaking side to side, there's something not right there. I might not consciously know what's not right, but at those moments, I typically, if I catch myself, that's when I, that's when I go into ask some questions mode to try and figure out what's going on there. And it's one of those tells, you know, I'm a terrible poker player because (laughs) I have all these little things that I do that are, are terrible tells, but that's one that I'm, that's a tell that I'm proud of
1: yeah that's and as someone who speaks before audiences, I do look for that those who are nodding their head uh, hopefully up and down versus back and forth <laughs> uh because you know that's that's also you know that body language that your audience needs to see uh in order to and if you see maybe one person out of a hundred do it that's but if you start seeing more and more doing that same type of body movement you know either they're, they're agreeing with you or they're disagreeing and you need to address the uh, the issue in the room to find out what's the disagreement about what, what, what aren't they agreeing with versus putting blinders on and just, I'm just getting to the end of this thing.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you talk about speaking and that's one of the skills that I've developed over the, you know, probably the past six years before I went, before I started the Ohio Society, I don't know that. I can't remember the last time I gave a presentation in front of a, a group of people, but at the Ohio society, we, you know, we're always looking for people at the accounting shows to fill in and do things. And over the past few years, I've started, you know, trying to do a different presentation every year. And it's always interesting to, you know, develop a presentation and, a, a, and think through it. But then the first time you give that presentation to look out in the room and, and see whether it works or not. And, one of my presentations that I gave uh, last year is called Hack, where I'm, li, a life hack is essentially improv with, you know, technology or some concept. You know, you take something that can do A and you think about it and you go, oh, well, I can solve problem B with that as well. And in giving those presentations, it, it was really obvious some things stuck with people and other things people didn't, didn't really buy into. Um, so it was interesting, as that presentation evolved over time, I slowly got rid of those things where looking out at the audience, you'd see people, you know, disagreeing or being confused. And, and that was very helpful in developing that into something that, you know, turned out to be a pretty good presentation in the end.
1: Well, you just used a, an improv skill called co-create. You're having your audience help create your presentation from the feedback that they're giving.
0: Now that I think about it, I think every time I've ever given that presentation,
1: somebody has
0: walked up to me at the end of the presentation and given me one of their life hacks. And that is just, I love that. I can't i can't think of his name off the top of my head, but there was somebody that went uh, to that session down in Cincinnati. And I think for the next six months, he and I emailed back and forth about once a week with some new little trick that we had thought of. And it was... One of those things where you know you connect with a like-minded person, and and the things you can develop together are just amazing.
1: Yes, and yes, and that's improv, Uh, and and, and that's the fun part of it. It, It's it's not making stuff up, but it's going into to a room with nothing, but walking out with something because you 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 collaborated on on an idea. You were open to suggestions. You were open to ideas, Uh, and I think that's another quality that that great leaders have is they're open to To everybody's idea in in improv we say bring a brick don't bring a cathedral yeah because the cathedral is i've already got the agenda you uh, you're just talking and, and i've already made up my mind so what i don't really care about your idea but if you bring a brick we can build our cathedral we can build the parking lot we can do all of that stuff but don't come into a uh into it with with being so set on your agenda that you won't listen to somebody else's ideas
0: yeah, you know, it's funny. One of the other things that that I've always been a big believer in, I, I tend to be an introverted person. And what I've learned is part of that means that if you put me in a room and you you throw a new idea at me, typically on the spot, I am not going to be able to digest it and come up with my own, you know, bends on it. But if you give me an idea beforehand and you let me think about it a little bit, I tend to come up with some some good thoughts. And then I think, you know, at that point, I feel far more comfortable coming into a room with a bunch of other people that have thought about this and sharing and then building on it. And so that's one of the things I've always, I've always liked to try and do whenever I'm working with, you know, a committee or a group is be very clear, hey, we're going to talk about this topic. You know, at least think about it a little bit beforehand. You know, you don't have to write a 10-page paper, but giving people that think
1: the way I do, an opportunity to do that, I think is huge. It, it, it is. It, it really is. It, it goes a long way in implementing anything. And, and and always knowing that, you know, we could overanalyze at times. And, and you know, when we, when we put something in, pl- in play, we know that there could be, we may not have thought of everything. And that, that's fine. But to build and say, okay, we didn't, oh, something we didn't think about, all right, now we just need to adapt, fix, move forward versus, now we're going to cast blame on you because this did not go 100% of the way you had planned it. Nobody's going to come to the table with any new ideas. It's, it's you know, when we're, when we're visionary, when we're looking out into the future, when we're trying to do something as a group to move an organization forward, we can't see everything. But ex- accepting and that's another piece about them, accepting failure as a learning process, a growing process, is a heck of a lot more powerful than not accepting failure and using that as a as a um a bashing tool.
0: I couldn't agree more. I one of the things that looking back in my career has helped me, and I think it's helped me build trust with a lot of different types of leaders, is being willing to come forward and say, hey, I screwed that up. <laughs> That is a mess that I caused. Yeah. And you'd be amazed at the number of times you'll come across people that don't that don't want to be open about their mistakes because they have this fear. And the what ends up happening is that the mistakes gonna bubble up. People are gonna learn about the mistake one way or another. Typically, if you come forward with the mistake, people are gonna be far more understanding than if they discover it themselves and, and figure out that it was it was your problem. I can think of a a solid six examples just off my head where I walked into, you know, Scott or Clark's office and said, uh, you know, we did this, uh, it was my decision to make, and it was terrible. Uh, We've got to call some members and apologize. But that is far better than having one of those members call, you know, the CEO themselves and say, hey, your, your team is screwing this up pretty bad. And and I think that builds trust. Then, you know, I think where that's most helpful is then when something is screwed up and you didn't have anything to do with it. You know, it's it's clear. People know that you, if you mess it up, you're you're going to come and own it before anybody else.
1: It, exactly. It's that, it's that accountability. Plus, the cover-up is always worse than the actual mistake itself.
0: And it's always, it, we you know, we all have that same tendency. You always think in your head, oh, my God. I'm going to tell them that this mistake happened. It was my fault. And they're just going to fire me right now. Yeah, you know, That's the thought you, you build it up in your head and then you know, sometimes, yeah, you might've done something that terrible, but that is incredibly rare. And so just the, the art, the act of going in and admitting that you did something wrong is important. But, you know, I think the flip side of that is you have to also learn if you're, if you're making the same mistake over and over again, you know, I don't want to go into to Scott and say, "Hey, I screwed this." Remember how I screwed that up last year? Yeah, I did that same thing again. Yeah, and so I think that you know that's as important as as somebody you know develop and, and grow yourself. Don't don't make those same mistakes over and over again.
1: Alan, you're going to be wildly successful out in Montana. Uh, I, this has been a. a, a Wonderful conversation, you know, and, and I'm looking forward because I'm going to be out there on June 22nd, uh, speaking at your annual meeting. So it'll be great to you'll be a season per, yeah within that uh, organization because you'll been there what a whole maybe ten days by that point in time exactly exactly <laughs> yeah you'll you'll have it all figured out. But I I, I one sad to see you leave, and I, I I have to ask this question: Did you sell the Miata?
0: Yeah. The Miata has been sold. And uh, just today, it's amazing. Uh, people have this con- this concept that uh, you have a car and they put a dollar value on a car, but a Miata, and people are blown away by this. I, I have people ask me all the time. are like, oh man, I wish I could have a Miata. I'm like, get a Miata. They're like two, $3,000. Just, just buy one. If it falls apart, oh well. You know, the the Miata is the, the poster child for value. You, know, you buy a, a first-generation car with a pop-up headlight. I think they pop up two or three times, and you've gotten $2,000 of joy out of it.
1: <laughs> well, as you know, I have a, I have a 92 Miata. That was a divorce present to myself that I still own, and i um, I don't know how you sold your car. I, I think if I if I went to Montana, I'd have to drag mine with me. I, I've I've got way too much of an emotional attachment. That 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 car helped me out a whole lot during the during the early days of that divorce, and and I've I've I just I I I, I just absolutely love to drive that car, especially this time of year, top down, just driving around. I just I get so much joy out of it. Um, somebody could offer me two or three times the the amount, and I don't think I could I don't think I could sell it, but. I, well, you did say that you are, since you're out in big sky country, you, that you, you thought that maybe you and your family would pick up skiing again. And I think you said, because you, you do like to mountain bike, so you're moving that energies from, from the Miata into mountain biking. Is that, a, is that correct? That is correct. And, and
0: also moving the money. The money from the Miata went directly to a, a bike shop for a new bicycle, so...
1: Perfect. Well, you're going to be wildly successful. I know it. I'm looking forward to seeing you on the 22nd. And Gene, I know you, hopefully, you still listen. Take good care of him. He's a really great guy. So, Alan, I I appreciate the conversation. Absolutely loved it. Thank you for being the guest. Thank you, Pete. I would like to thank Alan again for spending time with me and sharing his thoughts on his experiences and his leadership insights. In episode 55, I interview Cody Boyce, who is the founder of Podcast Masters, who are the producers of my podcast. I've had a number of my guests and listeners ask me a lot of questions about starting a podcast, as well as give a lot of praise to the -the behind-the-scenes work of Podcast Masters. So it's fitting that we pull the curtain back and talk to the Wizard of Podcasting. Thank you again for listening, and remember to use the principles of improvisation to help you become a better leader.